0: Thank you. This morning's reading is taken from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. So we're starting this new series this morning, (laughs) the story behind the doctrine. There are... There's a story that I believed growing up in the UK, and it's a story that I believed for a very long time about what doctrine is and where it comes from. And the story goes like this. Doctrine is an invention of the church in order to control people, to control the population. It's really an arbitrary set of propositions, an arbitrary set of beliefs, and there's a lot of fear and intimidation and threats attached to these arbitrary set of beliefs, so that they can manipulate people into doing what they want them to do. Think things like you know, if you don't believe this, then you're going to burn in hell, and that, and that sort of thing. And, and it's, it feels like, well, this seems so arbitrary. Why would my eternal destiny be wrapped up in me saying yes or no to this particular proposition, right? And 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 it, but that's so. What this does is it makes Christians the biggest hypocrites because um, instead of doing things out of love and out of charity, they're actually doing things out of um, egoistic self-interest. It's all all self-preservation and out of fear, um, and there's really not much altruism involved. So if you wanted to break down this particular story, um, it would go like this. Doctrine is a set of arbitrary beliefs meant to hand power to the church using fear and intimidation, turning people into massive hypocrites. (laughs) And of course, this story, which is a very powerful narrative, and and a lot of people believe this, um, doesn't come from nowhere, it comes from somewhere. And I'll tell you, the first thing that pops into my head is the Spanish Inquisition, right, where where there were hundreds of thousands of forced conversions. Muslims and Jews are told, you either convert or otherwise leave, right? Um, And of course, there were other... There were other inquisitions like the, the Portuguese Inquisition and the Roman Inquisition, but you just don't hear as much about it because they weren't quite as efficient uh, as the as Spanish Inquisition. But the, the idea was to bring um, large geographical regions under papal control and authority. So when people hear the word doctrine, they immediately have these images of nasty old bishops going around getting people for believing the wrong thing. But we don't really have to look back to the 1400s to be able to find um, sort of this sort of spirit, right, at, at work, we, we, and, and where this story about doctrine and inspiration for this story comes from. Because we can look in the contemporary church, and we find something in that vein. Of course, it's drained of its papal power and authority, uh, but it, it, there are what we have in the contemporary church is the. The doctrine, the self-appointed doctrine police, right? And and every church has. Actually, I don't know who they, the doctrine police are in our church. Um, Tim, may, maybe Tim is our doctrine police. Uh, but you know, maybe they're secret police. I don't know. But most churches, most churches have these do, self-appointed doctrine police who've made it their aim in life to sneak out and snuff out heresy. And every time they hear someone saying something that isn't sound doctrine, uh, then they're ready to pounce and put it right, because if they don't do it, then the whole church is going to go off the orthodox rails, and, and this is what's going to happen. Um, and I have been on the receiving end of the doctrine police. Uh, when I was on staff at a much larger church, where there were thousands of people coming on a Sunday morning, you, you know, if, if you're speaking to that many people, there's somebody amongst them are going to get really upset, and the doctrine police would emerge, and they would I'd end up in these long email exchanges. And then I'd end up in these long uh, series of meetings, sometimes with someone else sitting in on those to sort of supervise the meeting, and they would be asking things like, what are you doing here? How did you even get into this church? Uh, And they would run this campaign to try to get me kicked out. Now, most people were very kind, very loving, but the self-appointed doctrine police, they were there. Fun times. Um, The doctrine police, always there to make the slightly dodgy pastor's life miserable. So with all this in mind, I'm sure you're all very excited that we are going to begin this series on doctrine. And uh, I want to look at three doctrines in this series. We're going to look at the doctrine of the Incarnation, the doctrine of the Resurrection, and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and even just listing those off uh, doesn't make it better, does it? It makes it worse. Um, Some of you are like, ah, I think, you know what, I'll skip the next few weeks. You let me know when you're done, and we'll be back. Um, But despite everything I've said so far about doctrine, my hope, of course, is that in sometime over the next few weeks, you'll come to see that this is not just something really, really important, but it's something really, really beautiful as well. And I'm not saying that by the end of these next few weeks you're going to believe this if you don't already believe this. But I'm hoping whether you believe this or not, you will at least see that this is something important. It has played an important role and that it is something beautiful as well. And in order to do that, we have to sort of go back to where these doctrines came from. Where, where did they emerge from? Right. And so we have to go back before the doctrine police and we have to go back before 1478 and the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and, and so we'll do that in just a moment. But first of all, I, I want to just, uh, as we look at, we're starting off with the doctrine of the incarnation, right? And so what I want to do first of all is just to say well what is the claim here what is this doctrine actually claiming and then I want to ask what is it affirming okay so this claim they saying something so what does this claim mean what does it affirm um, and so the claim uh, is simply first of all that God has come as a human being he's come in the flesh he's come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and therefore Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully human at the same time paradoxically fully God fully human this is the claim God God has come to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the the claim. Then what is this affirming? Well, it affirms at least two, I think, really interesting and important things. First of all, it affirms the goodness of the material world, the goodness of, of the physical world, matter and energy, flesh and blood and bone. It affirms, in other words, the goodness of creation. It is, if you like, God driving a stake into the ground of the cosmos and saying, this is mine and this is good. Right? So that that's that's the first thing that that this claim affirms. That the second thing is that it affirms our vocation, the human vocation. Human beings have a vocation. I thought I was just going to do my own thing. No, no, we've got a vocation, we've got a calling. And if you've been around twenty minutes for any length of time, you know what it is. Uh, and it is that we are called to reflect God's image, to reflect God's goodness, God's compassion, God's justice, God's mercy, God's generosity, God's hospitality. So, we're call This is an affirmation of our vocation, our calling as human beings. And it's saying, look, this is there any hope for humanity? You look around and, and see how we fail to do that and then along comes jesus and we say look this is the person who fulfills that vocation and he opens up the future for humanity we follow him and we will learn to fulfill that vocation too and of course this is tied in all of this is tied in with the the christian orthodox claim that jesus is lord Right? This is the the profession of faith. Jesus is Lord at your baptism. Do you declare that, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you profess that? Right? And, and this is not just to say, do you believe Jesus is God? Right? It's not just saying that. It's not just recognizing the divinity of Jesus. It, It is saying that Jesus is the one who actually has the rights and the authority to shape my humanity. So uh, in a way we could we could put it like this Jesus is Lord means Jesus defines for me what it means to be a human being. So doctrine is the doctrine of, of the incarnation is really shorthand for all of this. This 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 whole story that I've just been telling and unpacking just now, okay? the doctrine of the incarnation is shorthand for for the formalised version, if you like, of of this story that claims these things and affirms these things. And it's this story that actually brought the early church, the early Christians, into head-on dramatic confrontation and collision with the Roman authorities. Because the Roman authorities said, no, 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 you've got to say Caesar is Lord. And to say Caesar is Lord is not simply to say we recognize Caesar is God. We recognise Now we get on with our lives, thank you very much. We We recognize divinity of Caesar. Now I'm just going to go and do my own thing. No, no, no. To say Caesar is Lord is to say this world belongs to Caesar, And to say Caesar is Lord is so does my humanity. He gets to shape us how he wants us to, how he wants to shape us. And so what I want us to see, first of all, just from what we've said so far, I hope you can see, to say Jesus is Lord or to say Caesar is Lord, these are not abstract speculative, uh, metaphysical debates floating around up here somewhere. Sometimes in doctrines, there's these abstract metaphysical, arbitrary, speculative ideas floating around in the ether, right? But these are actually very concrete decisions. About what human beings will be and what human beings will become, and so it's this story that sets the church into this head-on collision with the authorities and so in the midst of this this conflict, this collision, right, comes this man called Marcion. Now you may have heard of Marcion because he's the person who actually put together the very first New Testament version of the New Testament canon, missing a few books and edited down a few books and you'll you'll see why in a minute. Marcion was also not known for that back and he was known for this incredibly successful businessman. Uh, he was the Bill Gates, the Elon Musk, right? He he, he was a very wealthy Shipping magnet at the the time. And when he showed up in Rome, apparently it caused something of a stir. There was something of a sensation when when he showed up. And so it's not, it doesn't take much historical imagination to understand that when when a guy like him shows up and causes a stir and he's got so much success, he's also got so much to lose. And so someone like that with so much to lose is not going to necessarily like a story that brings him into head on collision with the state. Um, I'll give you some examples from uh, from China. Actually, this is uh, from the end of last year from Forbes. Um, Formerly, China's richest person was Jack Ma, um, and his last public sighting was at Shanghai's Bund Summit in late October, where he criticized Chinese regulators for stifling innovation. So, So that's interesting. He's criticizing them for shaping humanity a certain way. He's saying, look, human beings have this innovative, creative side to us, and you're stifling that, you're, you're shutting that aspect of our humanity down. You're shaping humanity all wrong here, or at least in that respect. By early November, he was reportedly summoned to a meeting with Chinese authorities who then pulled the plug on the planned IPO, which was about to go public two days later, but it never did. <laughs> Andrew Nathan, who's actually a professor here at Columbia, uh, he's a specialist in in Chinese politics, and and, uh, he said that uh, the the big picture is that Ma got too big for his britches, both in independent speech as well as in actual financial power. So whether he was detained or voluntarily laying low, either one is a version of the party reasserting its absolute power. In other words, this world belongs to us, and so do you. Ma's absence from the public sphere is part of a larger pattern. As Forbes has reported before, in recent years, at least half a dozen other billionaires and wealthy businessmen have vanished from public life after running afoul of the Chinese Communist Party. In December 2015, reports emerged that Gao Guangchang, often called China's Warren Buffett, had gone missing. Some claim to have witnessed him being taken away by the police at Shanghai's airport. Um, Now, my point being is that for someone like Marcion, uh, whose position has so much to lose, he's not going to like the kind of story that brings you into that kind of confrontation with the state. And someone like Marcion may well be motivated out of political expedience to change the story because he was obviously drawn to something about Christian spirituality, but he was going to change the story at precisely those places which produce those kinds of dangerous frictions and, and confrontations and so he did, he changes the story and the story went like this God didn't really take on human flesh um, because this material world was created by an evil lesser God so why would he take on human flesh and enter into this evil material world um, and so we should then withdraw into a personal and private spirituality, so we don't have to deal and end up in the confrontation with this dehumanizing cult of empire and emperor. Right. So it just just changes changes the story. Um, now I just want to um, I just want to introduce another character. So he's changed the story like this. But there's another character at the time, uh, and he's one of the early church fathers. Irenaeus. And Irenaeus had sat at the feet of the bishop Polycarp and learned from him. And Polycarp, Polycarp had been friends with the apostle John. John. Eric just read that the one who wrote in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the, talking about the incarnation there. He was friends with John. So John teaches Polycarp, Polycarp teaches Irenaeus. And and so Irenaeus would have remembered all of his, he would have heard him reminiscing, Polycar reminiscing about his time with John. So the moment, the moment he heard someone like um, Marcion come along and start changing the story in this way, he would say, well, wait, wait, that's not how the story goes. And the reason why the story was so important to him is not only was this a story that was bringing them into confrontation with the Roman state, but... It was also uh, the story that was sustaining them through that confrontation. So, so as they're being burned alive in iron chairs, as this, they're being put to death by the sword, as, as they are being fed to the wild beasts and torn apart, it's this. they were being sustained as they faced this confrontation by this story that told them, look, God has identified with you in your humanity, and God has come and suffered with you in the flesh. God has identified with you in your humanity, and God has come and suffered with you in the flesh, the crucified God. And of course incarnation is very close to resurrection. You can't have a bodily resurrection without, first of all, having a bodily incarnation. You have a bodily incarnation, then you put that body to death, and then you can have a bodily resurrection. And next week we'll look more at the resurrection, but um, essentially, just this aspect of the resurrection we'll bring up now, the God who had identified with them in their bodily suffering also promised to vindicate their humanity through bodily resurrection. What God has done for Jesus, God will do for you, essentially disarming the tyrant, taking away the tyrant's last weapon, which is, of course, the threat of death. Again, whether you believe these things or not, that's another that's another question, and that's an interesting conversation, and one I hope we can have, right? Whether you believe these things or not, that's that's one thing. But I hope you can see that this is the story that brought these people into confrontation and sustained them through that confrontation. Um, and so, from that perspective, this becomes something important and something beautiful, because it this is. If we don't walk away with anything, I, I hope we walk away with this at least this morning, that we understand that this is not a set of, doctrine is not a set of rules, as it's been weaponized and turned into by the doctrine police. It's not a set of rules uh, for the club, and you decide who's in the club and who's out of the club, who's got mem- full membership and who doesn't. That, that's, it's, that's not what doctrine is. Um, and then nasty old Irenaeus uh, goes around finding people and, and, and getting them for believing the wrong things. It's the other way around. The church didn't invent doctrine to control other people. Doctrine was inve- was invented to reinforce the story that was sustaining people who were facing persecution from a totalitarian state over the battle for who owns this world and who gets to shape our humanity. And they were not going to be sustained by an anemic, and I'll put this up there because this is my assessment of the Gnostic story, politically safe, creation-hating, escapist, story i don't understand the fascination with gnosticism today i don't, I don't get it everyone Ooh, the, gnostic, the gnostic gospels is really what it was all about and where it's at what are you talking about this this is a politically safe creation hating body hating escapist narrative and they weren't, the early church was never sustained. That was not the kind of story that would bring you into confrontation with the state, and it's not the kind of story that would sustain you through a confrontation either. So what is our story driving us to? We'll end here. What is our story driving us to? Does it remove us from the world, or does it push us into the world and bring us into conflict and confrontation? Perhaps not as direct and as dramatic as the early church, or even the persecuted church today in places like China, but into confrontation with the powers that be, uh, we we're not disappearing billionaires just yet. We are disappearing. Um, you know, there's uh, ABC journalists, you might have heard about Meek. He's he's. Uh, since April, gone, gone missing. So you may have uh, stood, well, journalists are starting That that is happening here, um, and um, we we're not disappearing billionaires. We're we're, we're we're threatening to investigate them for acquiring apparatus of the intelligence uh, apparatus when billionaire buys Twitter. Well, we might have to investigate that that guy. Uh, we can argue about that later, <laughs> um, but we're not disappearing them just yet. But, but what do we find ourselves going against the grain? We find ourselves going against the grain of of that of the the dominant story. Uh, I think there are many forces which work to shape our humanity in different ways. Sometimes it, it is in the form of a d- d- dictatorship, like Sasa, and <laughs> they're they're having to face that kind of confrontation, much more dramatic, um, much more. Deadly. Um, then, we, we, you know, we mentioned the, the people under communist China. For us, I think it's what we what we encounter is more of the, the transnational corporations who look. We we sometimes do things which you would never do in, as an individual, but collectively we do them. And I I love what Noam Chomsky says. He he says that, that he says, look, the the way I described it, he says, look, we've given these corporations the rights of individuals. But the trouble is, they're corporations, they're not individuals, and so they don't have a conscience as such. And so an individual with rights, some, somebody or some entity with rights, but without a conscience, that's a sociopath. And so collectively, we end up doing things which we would never dream of doing as individuals to each other, right? Um, and so these, I think these transnational corporations, a lot of them would just as soon turn us into units in the marketplace exchangeable units in the marketplace so you've got uh, you know w- w- Wigger slaves producing things over here for consumers over here but you know one day we might want to turn these people into slaves over here for consumers over over there or or, or somewhere somewhere else and so what what happens is that there's a, a, i think there has been a concerted effort to uh, erase erase local customs and culture and tradition right Tradition's a dirty word. Local customs, cultural tradition. Uh, And because these are the sorts of things that stand in the way of that very reductive approach to human beings. But as those things fade away, we become more and more susceptible to this sort of atmosphere, you could call it. And I, I suppose you could call it a very dark spirituality which seeps into us. And we find ourselves becoming more and more transactional. And we start to instrumentalize other human beings and and people become a means to an end and utilities. And so I I just want us to, to, it's shocking how quickly we can fall into that. And, And I just want us to just end up here just thinking about friends and the people in our lives who this is. These are going to be some of the most important people in your lives, if we really want to follow Jesus. The people in your lives who cannot help you get ahead. And we've talked about this earlier this year, and I want to just bring this up again. Who are the? Just think now. Who are the people in your lives who cannot help you get ahead? Who cannot help you achieve your next goal, whatever it is—career goal, financial goal, some sort of society, social goal? They just—they don't have that to give you. But you know what they've got to give you? Just love and friendship that's it and maybe they need your love and friendship even more than you need theirs but 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 it becomes this mutual loving friendship where you actually they're in your life and you care about them and they care about you and i want us to to think about who those people are and uh, and and the time that we give to those people and invest in those people because that for us i think in this transactional world which we've got transnational corporations wanting to turn us into units in a marketplace. How do we turn the people in our lives not units in our own personal marketplace? So let's, let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for those early believers, those Jesus followers who are so gripped by the story of Jesus that it did bring them into confrontation with the powers that be and they found themselves sustained through that by the same story Father we pray that we would be drawn more deeply into this wonderful story about Jesus which affirms the goodness of your creation and affirms us in the vocation of being human so Father we we pray for those friends now let's just take a moment to think of those people in our lives just name them before God pray for them those people who haven't got anything else to give you but love and friendship and who may need your love and friendship more, even more than you need theirs. Pray for those people who cannot help you get ahead or achieve your goals, whatever they might be. And we pray, Lord, for more opportunities to love, to serve, to be with these friends. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) we <laughs> be